In 2011, David Slater arrived on the shores of the Indonesian island Sulawesi. He traveled deep into the forest to the Tangkoko Reserve to take the perfect photo of the crested black macaque. The monkeys were curious about David, who set up his tripod cautiously amongst them. They watched as he placed his camera on the tripod and took a few steps back. Macaques have practically no fear of humans. So, ignoring David altogether, they began to investigate. What happened next could have been fate, or it could have been random, or it could have just been a very smart monkey. But one of the macaques took a hold of the camera and started pressing the shutter button. This resulted in one of the most infamous photos in pop culture, known today as the monkey selfie. The macaque looks like he's grinning right at the camera. His big eyes and even bigger teeth take up almost the whole shot. After David returned home to the UK, he posted all of his photos on his website for sale in a digital book. But soon after he uploaded them, he found that the monkey selfie was popping up in other places on the internet, too. Specifically, he kept finding it on Wikipedia. He received no credit from their posts, no link to his website, or even his name. So he asked them to take it down. Wikipedia denied this request, telling David he had no right to the photo. They claimed that the photo's copyright belonged to whoever had pressed the shutter button. And in this case, that was the monkey. David took Wikipedia to court over this claim. And he won. There's a lot more to copyright than who pushes the trigger on the camera, David said. There's consideration of the effort, the skill, the technical knowledge behind it, the vision. I set up the shot. I was behind all the components in taking that image. But in 2015, David wound up in court again. This time, he was the one being sued, by PETA no less. Celebrities and models have gone naked for them, and they've saved millions of lives. They are people for the ethical treatment of animals. 38 years ago, they represented the macaque in the photo, whose name is apparently Naruto. PETA argued that the monkey, known as Naruto, actually owned the rights to the image because he took the photo. A lower court Here's the statement from PETA's general counsel. Naruto should be considered the author and copyright owner, and he shouldn't be treated any differently from any other creator simply because he happens to not be human. The case Naruto versus Slater was heard by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2018. Before the court could rule, though, David and Peter reached an agreement on their own terms. The animal rights group said it would drop the appeal if Slater agreed to give 25% of his future earnings from the photo to charities to protect the monkeys, which he agreed to do. But the court decided to rule on the case anyway, to make their point abundantly clear. The judge went as far as to call the lawsuit frivolous. He awarded the copyright to David, saying, <clears throat> at no point in the Copyright Act does it indicate the law extending to animals. I wonder if the news ever reached Naruto on Sulawesi. Hopefully he wasn't too beat up about it. I love this story because it's kind of hilarious, 
but also because it shows how tricky copyright can be. Creative works are intricate and complicated, so it makes sense that the laws protecting them are too. Would this story have ended differently if it wasn't a monkey who had taken the photo, but a five-year-old human? Or a tour guide who was showing David the reserve? Does the copyright belong to David regardless? Because it was his idea to go to Sulawesi and photograph the macaques. When does an idea merit protection and when doesn't it? In this episode, we explore these questions about copyright. With the help of experts, we'll dig deep into the Copyright Act to see how it protects our creativity and how it even incentivizes it. From the Intellectual Property Owners Education Foundation, this is Stroke of Genius. It was 1990. A train was rolling through England from Manchester to the King's Cross Station in London. The train slowed and then stopped. Delays, the conductor announced, will be moving again shortly. A woman on the train looked out the window. Her name was Joanne, but everyone called her Jo. She fiddled with a pen in her lap, wishing she had a notebook as the ideas came to her. By the time the train finally rolled into London, Joe had planned out a seven-book series centered around a skinny boy with dark hair, glasses, and a lightning-shaped scar. Joe, or J.K. Rowling, as most of us know her, published Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone five years later. Soon the book was published in the U.S. and then dozens of other countries. Next, it was adapted into a movie. With each book that came out, the Harry Potter fan base grew and grew and grew. Now the books have been translated into over 70 different languages and have earned J.K. Rowling over $7.7 billion. She created an entire world full of spells and monsters and magic. Its entry fee, the price of a book or a movie ticket, is one that people pay willingly, gladly. These days, there are a lot of people who no longer support J.K. Rowling for various reasons. But some of her earliest criticism involves some pretty wild accusations about copyright. In fact, some people have argued that J.K. Rowling stole their ideas, that she infringed on their copyrights. My name is Dave Cluft. I'm a lawyer, and I uh, have a couple areas that I practice in. Uh, one is copyright and trademark. Dave is a copyright lawyer, but he's also a dad. You know, I had an 11-year-old running around the house. Everything was about Harry Potter, and so it was on my mind. And so I just started looking it up from sort of my angle and realizing, oh, my gosh, you know, you have franchises that have been around for 30 years that haven't generated 
a tenth of the lawsuits that Harry Potter has. It's just incredible the kind of inspiration for both good and for, I guess, evil for legal activity that the, that Harry Potter has um, unleashed on the world. It's It's sort of unprecedented. Dave decided to compile all these cases into a blog post called Harry Potter Lawsuits and Where to Find Them. It's scrupulous, filled with details from lawsuits literally all over the world. He didn't write it alone, though. He had help from an associate at his firm and a renowned Harry Potter expert. My stepdaughter, Sophia, kind of uh, fact-checked the Harry Potter references. She was, uh, I think, 11 at the time. And also, when I needed puns, she could, she could help me find puns or quotes from the book that I otherwise might not have found by myself. Dave walked me through the very first copyright lawsuit filed against Rowling. I think the first case that most people heard about uh, involving Harry Potter and intellectual property was Stouffer versus Scholastic, or it might be Scholastic versus... In 1999, a woman sent a letter to Rowling's American publisher, Scholastic. The woman's name was Nancy Stouffer. She lived in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, a town whose population comes in a little under 8,000. She started writing nasty letters to Scholastic saying, hey, you, this Harry Potter stuff you're publishing, it's just a ripoff of my stuff. I created this stuff. Nancy was referring to her children's books, published in the 80s, called The Legend of Ra and the Muggles, and Larry Potter and his best friend Lily. Sounds familiar, right? Plus, Larry Potter happened to have short brown hair and wear glasses. Nancy Stouffer threatened to sue Scholastic for copyright infringement. And she kept threatening to sue for three years. Finally, Scholastic filed its own suit, a declaratory judgment action. A declaratory judgment suit is when the potential defendant in a lawsuit just gets sick of waiting for the plaintiff to sue and goes into court and says, all right, I want a declaration that we didn't do anything wrong. The case Stouffer versus Scholastic was a quick one. The court found nothing substantial in Nancy's claim of copyright infringement. Her muggles were little bald creatures who lived in a post-apocalyptic world. Her Larry Potter's main issue was that he couldn't see until he started wearing glasses. Sometimes in copyright cases, when you have a David versus Goliath situation, where you have a small-time uh, person or an artist who doesn't feel like their career went that well, claiming that their work was taken by a big studio, sometimes it's been known that they engage in a little self-help. So in other words, they're essentially creating evidence or, or fraudulently creating evidence for their case. And the court found that's what happened here with Nancy Stouffer. The court found that the word muggles wasn't even in the title of Nancy's book until after she started sending letters to Scholastic. Uh, ultimately, the way this case ended was that uh, instead of her getting a big payoff from rolling, she was saddled with a $50,000 sanction for presenting fraudulent evidence to the court. Dave went on to tell me about some of the other lawsuits from his blog post. Like in 2005, Weird Sisters versus Warner Brothers. A Canadian folk band sued the movie studio for J.K. Rowling's reference to a band that performs in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Or in 2010, Jacobs versus Scholastic, an author sued the publisher for supposedly copying from his 16-page booklet, The Adventures of Willie the Wizard. Or 2015, Grisky versus Disney Company? Disney Studios didn't even make the Harry Potter movies, but a woman claimed that several plot points had been stolen out of her very own autobiography. She was seeking 20 billion in damages 
none of these cases held up in court. Because even though some of them had similarities to the Harry Potter world, it didn't really matter. Copyright is a body of law that protects artistic expression. And uh, that expression, that word's really important. So the idea of a boy wizard going to a school and discovering himself, that's not protectable. It's the particular way it's put on the screen or put on the page that is protectable. You can't claim to have had that idea and sue Rowling. And if uh, you have the idea after Rowling and use it, Rowling can't sue you just for the idea. That's how copyright law works. It's not about ideas, it's about expression. It wasn't the idea of Harry Potter that made Rowling so famous. It was how she made him real. How she built the world. What words she used, what names she picked, what stories unfolded. When you think that the world of Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling has got nothing more to offer. They come out with a brand new way to just keep people excited. So excited to see the magical wizarding world continue. All the world I think that Harry Potter is so successful because it draws on archetypes that were already out there. There's hero myth ideas, there's uh, ideas about coming of age, all of those are in the air, magic. Any individual idea in Harry Potter maybe with a few exceptions, you can find somewhere else that preceded it. That's why Rowling won all those lawsuits. And maybe that's why Rowling feels so confident filing her own when people infringe on her copyright. For the most part, she's pretty lenient when it comes to fan fiction or other pieces of work that fall under fair use. Fair use is a defense to copyright infringement. Um, the way courts describe this fuzzy test is basically like this. Uh, they're looking for something transformative. So if you take Harry Potter and you use that to create something new, something truly new, something that doesn't replace the original, something that doesn't hurt the market for the original, but it is a new work of art that sort of lives on its own, uh, that is generally protected by fair use. But this is a fuzzy line. How can a judge decide what's fair use and what's not? When is a piece of Harry Potter fan writing transformative enough? A lot of times, it isn't. I think the most important lawsuit that uh, Rowling's people, and specifically Warner Brothers and uh, Scholastic ever filed, was the, um, the Harry Potter lexicon case. 2007. Warner Brothers Entertainment Incorporated versus RDR Books. Harry Potter creator J.K. Rowling had to defend her Harry Potter against what she calls a wholesale theft of nearly 20 years of work. The author... At least, that was the official name of the case. But it was really J.K. Rowling versus Steve van der Ark. It gives me no pleasure to take legal action but I'm here today because I feel very strongly about an issue that affects many more people than just me. If books that plagiarize other works are permitted, authors, fans, and readers stand to lose. My name is Steve Vanderark. I'm, uh, um, wow, I'm older than sometimes I think I am. I'm 62 years old, but I, I always say I'm every age I've ever been, so sometimes I'm a lot younger than that. Steve loves Harry Potter. He was a librarian when the first book was published in the U.S., and a few of his librarian friends recommended it to him. But it wasn't until the second book came out that he got really, really into it. 
I can remember what really hooked me was when I opened up and started reading the second book. There's one chapter there where Molly Weasley's kitchen is described. And I just, it's got like the names of the cookbooks. And I just thought that was it. I, I had to get out a notebook and start writing notes. Steve can't even count the number of times he's read each book. <laughs> How many times have I, have I read the novels? Um, it's between, depending on the book, it's between 40 and 100. If you ask Steve about the books, he'll tell you exactly what he thinks about each of them. In detail, book by book, chapter by chapter. My favorite passage in the book is chapter 12 of uh, Philosopher's Stone, which is the one where he... Uh, well, I always call him Superhero Harry. He's, he's like, you know, uses a broom to outfly a dragon, and he is, he's playing in this sporting event. And what happens in book five is he is literally transformed, and not in a very fun way for him, because Luna in the books represents... Remember the, faith, the veil the in the death chamber in the Department of Mysteries? We could hear their voices. And, so she and at the end, Voldemort attacks. Harry uses Expelliarmus, which is, means it disarms. He doesn't even use a fighting spell at the end to defeat Voldemort. So that, because I, if you think about it, I really Steve says this is probably why he was sorted, by the sorting hat, of course into the house of Ravenclaw. In case you're a Harry Potter rookie like me, here's the 101. Each of the four houses at Hogwarts are known for a particular trait, and Ravenclaws are known for their brains. Here's how Steve described Ravenclaws. The house places high value on intelligence, wit, and learning. I've written three books about Harry Potter. I've, you know, I've, the, the, the knowledge part of it. If, if you think about it, I run the lexicon. The deep thinking about Harry Potter is what I do, so it makes sense. The lexicon is Steve's fan site, but describing it that way is like describing the Harry Potter series as books about three kids at a boarding school. It's just a huge understatement. Well, at that time, I was creating the Harry Potter lexicon because there was no dictionary, a, uh, an encyclopedia of the Harry Potter novels. Steve had all those notebooks he'd filled with details about Rowling's intricate world. Every character, every place, every spell or potion, he was the encyclopedia. In 1999, he decided to put those notes to good use. Steve recruited a team of people who were probably Ravenclaws themselves. They compiled all the information they could find and began to construct a new world of their own, something more tangible than it had ever been before. It was the world of fandom. What you have to understand about 1999 and fandom is that that was right when the internet was becoming a thing. And so Harry Potter fans basically invented online fandom. There was this proliferation of conversation and creativity and discussion about Harry Potter on the World Wide Web. And this was a new thing. It was a new thing largely thanks to Steve. He wanted fans like him, the ones who craved these little details of Rowling's world, to have one place to go. One site with all things Harry Potter. From Neville Longbottom's family tree to op-eds about muggle versus wizarding technologies. That little piece I read about Ravenclaw's wit and learning, that's from the lexicon. That is one sentence from a full page of information, including important Ravenclaws in history, the location of Ravenclaw Tower on Hogwarts campus, 
the uniform of their Quidditch team, even their ghost. Her name is Helena Ravenclaw, by the way, also known as the Grey Lady. That's all on the lexicon. Whenever anything new, if there was an interview or anything like this had come out, we would just, you know, comb through it looking for any other additional uh, bits of uh, what we call canon information, which is uh, the, the what do you call them, fantasy facts, the things that are true uh, uh, about that world. And Steve did all of this the way that he did everything, meticulously. He and his team always made sure to keep a contact at both Warner Brothers and Scholastic, the two big companies that held copyrights on Harry Potter. Steve was adamant about only using what he was allowed to. I would say, overall, the thing that makes me most proud about the lexicon is the fact that we have always been scrupulous about copyright. We've gotten permission for everything that we've used. Everything on Steve's website adheres to the rules of copyright. He gives credit to any source he draws from, whether it's the illustrations on the book covers or the Harry Potter books themselves or the movies that followed. Steve has always understood the importance of copyright. After all, without J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter world, there would be no lexicon. So Steve has always respected and credited the creative work that allows the lexicon to thrive. And of course, I'm an ex-librarian. A lot of my staff was librarians. We all know what a good reference site looks like. Basically, yeah, I would have to say that. I've, I've created a a, a very, very good, very, very um, well-put-together reference source. Creating the lexicon was hard work, tedious work. But it was work that Steve was willing to do. In fact, he was happy to do it because he loved it. As the site took off, Steve started to become kind of famous himself. It is funny because even now I have, you know, my kids will, will be amazed if I tell them that if I go to certain places, people want my autograph. He became a fan who had his own fans. Steve had done it. Just like J.K. Rowling, Steve had created a world, an online world, which was arguably more accessible than even Rowling's original. He had become influential. The company who made Harry Potter video games, they had printouts of lexicon all over their offices. The second Harry Potter DVD, it was released with a story timeline that was pulled directly from the lexicon. And Rowling knew about the lexicon too. She had publicly praised the site, saying she even used it sometimes as a reference. The fact that Rowling said that the lexicon was her kind of site and that she used it, that was like the ultimate validation of everything we were trying to do. In 2007, a few months after the final Harry Potter book was released, Steve was approached by a local publisher. The man worked at a publishing house called RDR Books. Steve had never really thought about turning the lexicon into a book. Because the website was doing so well, why bother? But the publisher insisted it would be great. Steve has always wanted to be careful about copyright. So before he made up his mind, he reached out to a friend of his who was a lawyer. She looked at it and she's, uh, she said, well, there's, there's no problem from fair use standpoint, but if you're in any way wondering, when you do the contract, just put in there that if there's any legal problem that that's going to be falling to the publisher and not to you. And so when we did our contract, that was in there, which in retrospect was uh, the worst thing that could have happened. I, I really wish that that hadn't been what we did, but I can't go back and change it now. 
Steve's right. He shouldn't have placed full legal responsibility on his publisher. Because when Warner Brothers contacted RDR Books with a cease and desist claim, the publisher's response was basically, we'll see you in court. They claimed the book should be covered by fair use, that Warner Brothers couldn't tell them not to publish it. He kind of went into battle mode on that. Steve's hands were tied. He didn't have the power to tell his publisher to back down, even though the book was his. And Warner Brothers certainly wasn't going to back down either. The court date was set, April 14th, 2008. Yeah, it was, it was surreal, I guess. It was surreal to be in New York City for that. It was surreal to be riding on the subway and uh, standing on the subway and looking down and seeing somebody read a newspaper. And my photograph was right there on the, on the page they were reading. What a lot of people don't know is that Steve played a very minor role in the lawsuit. Warner Brothers wasn't suing him. They were suing RDR Books, the publishing group. So he was only called to the stand for two hours, questioned as a witness. But like I said, a lot of people didn't know that, especially not Harry Potter fans. The fans who at one point had come streaming onto the Lexicon site They were now very strongly and very publicly anti-Steve Vanderark. Once the news of the lawsuit uh, came out, there was a really rough part of a a time there. And I was living in London. um, And I remember at at one point, this is before the trial, um, we realized that there were a group of fans online who were trying very hard to figure out where I lived. Um, because uh, I'm not sure what they th- why they needed to know that, but that was a very unsettling feeling to think that these people, whether were, were they going to wait, you know, try to beat me up, or I didn't know, you know. So um, it was it was it was a it was a dark time, if you will. The lawsuit was a tricky one, because it was about more than one tiny publishing house versus Warner Brothers. This case was almost entirely unprecedented in copyright law. In copyright, there was a there was a gray area. Um, what was called companion books, which are books like the Lexicon book, whether those things should be controlled by the original author, or whether it was okay for those things to exist uh, without the control of the original author. There was nothing to clarify that. It all goes back to that question: Are they transformative enough? After four days of trial, a trial Steve was a part of for only two hours. RDR ended up losing the case. The court ruled the lexicon wasn't transformative enough. It was too close to an encyclopedia that Rowling herself was planning on writing. Steve couldn't publish his book. At least, not in its current form. But the judge clarified that he wasn't ruling against companion books. In fact, he made it very clear that he was in favor of them. He said those books encourage creativity, rather than stifle it. And there are certainly ways to publish a companion book, to sell them for profit even, within the bounds of the Copyright Act. The judge told Steve as much. And by now, Steve was committed to the lexicon book. He'd worked hard on it, and he wanted to see it through. So Steve decided he'd do what he'd always done. He'd work with Warner Brothers and with Rowling to publish the lexicon book in their good graces which meant he had to follow their protocol on what was okay to use and what wasn't. That included a maximum word count on every entry, the number of spoilers allowed, and 
a lot more of Steve's own thoughts. I basically spent an entire year writing and went through every single entry because one of the things that had come up in the trial, what, what would really make this a, a more of a companion book is if there was more than just what was in the original books but also some commentary kind of stuff. So I wrote a ton of that and I added that all in. Would I say I'm, I'm proud of the result? Yeah, I think the book is a lot better for all of that. Um, and, you know, that was, a, that was a, a year of hard writing, but I'm very proud of, of how it turned out, definitely. In the world of Harry Potter fandom, Steve's life had gone from that of an expert to something of a celebrity to almost a villain. But then the trial ended. The revised book was published. You can buy it. It's called The Lexicon, an unauthorized guide to the Harry Potter fiction and related materials. Life pretty much returned to normal. People kind of forgot about it, I think, and they forgot about me, and the lexicon just kept going. We just kept working on it. Today, Steve still works tirelessly on the website. There's a staff of about 12 active editors from all over the world. We are constantly editing, updating. He's even started a lexicon podcast. Welcome to the Harry Potter Lexicon Podcast. This is episode number 31. My name is Steve Vanderark. I am the creator and editor-in-chief of the Harry Potter Lexicon website. And I'm Nick Moline, the Lexicon's tech wizard. Since the trial, he's published two other books on Harry Potter subjects. And he still attends fan conventions when he can. I asked him if he'd change anything that happened. If given the chance, he'd take it all back like Hermione does with the time-turner from book three, The Prisoner of Azkaban. He told me no, he wouldn't. Um, for one thing, I, I would never do that with any of my life because I think everything of your life is part of the tapestry that makes up who you are now, and I really like now. Um, but no, I wouldn't. Um, there were there were good things, there were bad things. I mean, how many people do you know who've had a caricature in The New Yorker drawn of them? And I was on a book tour in Texas, which is how I met my wife. So, I mean, there's there's some strangely cool things that happen through all of this. Uh, no, I wouldn't change any of it. I asked Dave, the copyright lawyer, what he thought about Steve's case. He said to him it seemed like a case with no bad guys. He had nothing but sympathy for Steve. He was just a fan. He wasn't trying to make money. And then he was sort of convinced that, hey, you know, all that labor you put in, you should get some compensation for. Why not? You're giving joy to all these people. You're not hurting, rolling. Why, why not? And that's what RDR convinced him. Uh, so I think it probably broke his heart. He did create something that brought a lot of joy, and he did put a lot of work into it. Uh, there was a lot of sweat of the brow. But one of the problems with copyright law, maybe you call it a problem, maybe not, is copyright law doesn't protect the sweat of the brow. It only protects original creative expression. So no matter how much work you put into something, doesn't matter. I expected Steve to bear some kind of grudge toward copyright law. But kind of surprisingly, he's still a huge proponent of copyright. If anything, he appreciates it even more now, after publishing his own books. I mean, if you go on Amazon now, you can find books that people have self-published where what they've done is copied things from the lexicon. I'm glad I'm not the one who has to try to figure all that stuff out. But yeah, I'm, I'm very much in, in favor of copyright. But I'm also very much in favor of fair use. So understanding what's allowed and what isn't, I think, is crucial. 
That day Joe got stuck on the train to London, she wasn't experiencing the first ever thought about a boy wizard. She was drawing from the stories that had inspired her, the themes she found interesting. But she went on to make something new, something that hadn't been done before. And you could say the same about Steve. He obviously drew from Rowling's world, but he transformed her ideas into something else. The Lexicon website was one of the first real online homes for Harry Potter fans. And the Lexicon book forever changed the way people think about fair use. And now, copyright protects them both. And it opens the door for whoever the next creator is. Whoever might come after Joe, after Steve, and make a new world of their own. What copyright are you creating this summer? Are you recording your own song, working on a book, or writing a play with friends? Let us know on Twitter at IPO Foundation. This episode is brought to you by Fagri Drinker, a law firm designed for clients. Fagri Drinker offers exceptional intellectual property services. With nearly 200 IP professionals, they partner with clients to identify, protect, and leverage creative and intellectual assets globally. Visit fagridrinker.com.